Welcome to Advantage. I'm your host, David Young, and today we're going to flip the script a little. We might even explore some ideas that are a little maybe controversial. So let me start with this. Uh, in education, we typically place a lot of emphasis on our actions being, quote, research-based. Now, there's nothing wrong with being research-based. In fact, that's important. Uh, it's a good quality control measure to make sure that we aren't uh, doing harm to our students. We want to do the right things, and we want to be responsible about that. But I'm putting research-based in quotes for a reason. First, research-based means that there's been an extensive study uh, on the practice, uh, usually followed by published results and maybe a white paper uh, explaining the methods that were used and the data that resulted. So again, there's not a thing wrong with that, but truthfully, there are some great classroom and, and school practices that haven't gone through a formal process like that, but they are wildly successful when they're used, and because of that, they should be used. We shouldn't eliminate those just because they haven't gone through that full formal research process. Now, the key to that is we can't just do anything we want. We have to be selective and we have to be responsible when considering those things. We do have to have evidence that those things work, that they work in multiple settings and with multiple groups of kids. But just because they haven't been through the formal process doesn't necessarily mean that something isn't a great practice. And then second, as they say, sometimes you can find research to support anything you want. So again, sometimes what I've seen or when I've seen work with my own eyes over years in multiple settings, that needs to have a seat at the table. And so that is what leads us to our topic today. I'm going to explore some counterintuitive practices with you today that, again, I've personally seen lead to student success, academic success, uh, success of whole classrooms, grade levels, schools, and districts. Uh, now, again, they're counterintuitive, some of them more than others, and so that means they may not be a mainstream idea. In fact, some of them might even rub you the wrong way a little when I first bring them up, but stick with me. There's a reason that each one of these things we're going to talk about today, while counterintuitive, is absolutely something that you should consider doing in your classroom, in your school, or in your district. But now I want to put another caveat on it. There, There's also important implementation details uh, that make sure that each one of these counterintuitive practices, number one, works, and number two, doesn't do any harm uh, to our students. So it's important that you listen to those details. And, uh, you know, I don't know about you all, but I kind of like it when an idea goes against the grain, but it works. And so I'm looking forward to today. I think it's going to be fun. And so with that, uh, if you're ready, let's go on and jump in. The first counterintuitive practice that I want to talk about today is flexible grouping of students. So let's define flexible. What does flexible mean? Flexible grouping of students means that the kids aren't going to just stay with the same group of peers all day long. Um, <clears throat> but it also means, it doesn't mean that they're just going to be mixed around 
for no reason. For instance, if you work at a high school, you know, kids move throughout the day and they're in different groups, but those groups that they could be in, that they're in, could be purposeful or it could just be random uh, selection. So when I say flexible grouping, I'm not talking about kids just being in different groups all day long for no purposeful reason. Flexible grouping means that we're going to rearrange students throughout the day in a purposeful, thoughtful way. Now, sometimes that may be that they're heterogeneously grouped. And when I say heterogeneously, I mean they're, they're in a mixed ability group. Uh, but other times during the day, uh, flexible grouping is going to mean that we're going to put students that have the same ability level in the same room at the same time or maybe students who have similar areas of strength or similar areas where they need growth together for periods of the day. And again, not talking about all day, flexible grouping means at key moments during the day, we're gonna have students put in particular groups for a particular reason. So why is flexible grouping, why is it counterintuitive? Well, some people some people say that's tracking, you know, and and, very, and and they'll they'll say you know I'm very much against tracks. I don't want I don't want the group of quote you know high academic kids being together all day long, and the group of low academic achieving kids together all day long either. I, we don't we don't want tracks. Uh, so when you say flexible grouping, and we're going to purposefully maybe put kids who who excel or who need to be accelerated together for periods of the day, or on the opposite end of the spectrum, we're going to put students who struggle uh, with reading or math or whatever the subject area is, uh, sometimes people will will kind of bristle up and say, no, 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 that's tracking. But flexible grouping is very much different than tracking. We aren't talking about students being together uh, in those same groups all day long. The second thing is uh, some folks will say, well, that's counterintuitive because heterogeneous grouping or mixed ability grouping that's the only way to go because students need role models. They need, you know, some students need to be able to see other students excel and see how they excel. And students who learn easily uh, learn better when they can teach things to their peers. Uh, and so if we, if we do mixed ability groups, those things happen. And that is all true uh, as well. Heterogeneous grouping has a lot of strengths. Uh, and it is important that students are heterogeneously grouped at certain times during the day. But when it comes to flexible grouping, I would recommend doing that at key moments of the day. I would primarily do it during reading or English language arts, and I would also do it uh, during math. So why does it work when flexible grouping of students? Well, first of all, it, uh, it helps the teacher to really become laser focused on the instruction. Uh, on the standards uh, that that meet. Now, you're still going to have some varying abilities, even if you put students who excel or uh, students who struggle in the room at the same time. There's still going to be some uh, variation of ability, but we're closer to being on the same grade level, which makes differentiation and scaffolding, which, by the way, uh, differentiation in a classroom is probably the absolute most important thing that we do. And it is also probably the absolute hardest thing that we try to do. So if we can have some student groupings at key times during the day that make it easier 
for me to plan differentiation and me uh, to plan scaffolding so that we can meet students where they are, we should do that. Uh, flexible grouping also allows uh, in some settings, and, and particularly this happens in high school anyway, but even in an elementary school, it would allow for some uh, multi-age grouping if you need it, if you have some students who need to be accelerated or you have some students uh, who, maybe, who maybe need to be with some peers uh, that, that are a grade level uh, younger for a, uh, for a limited time of day, flexible, flexible grouping allows that to happen. And then I want to get to the biggest reason that flexible grouping is good. And I want to stick with, again, with students who are maybe struggling in reading and math. If you can get those students together in the same room at the same time for that subject, even though it's counterintuitive, what it allows you to do is if you schedule properly, and what I mean is if you schedule your students properly and then schedule the adults properly, it allows you to get multiple certified teachers in the room at the same time with those students. Now, that may be, um, you know, a math teacher. You may be able to get two math teachers in the, in the same class. Ideally, you may be able to get a math uh, content teacher and a special education teacher in the room together or a math teacher, a special education teacher, and maybe an instructional assistant um, but if you can schedule properly, if you have those students who struggle in the same room at the same time, and, and this isn't an IEP thing, a uh, student may have an IEP and be in that class, or they may have an IEP and not be in that class. Uh, student, uh, it, it really isn't predicated uh, on disability. It's predicated on students who need that extra support. So if you can get them in the same room at the same time, and then you can push multiple adults into that room, that means you can break into small groups uh, and you can teach the lesson in chunks so that you can meet students exactly where they are, have an adult with a small group of students, that stu those students can get a small chunk, then they can rotate to the next station with a new adult, they can get the next chunk of the lesson, and then they can rotate through to the last one. What that does is that eliminates, it may not eliminate, but it greatly reduces uh, the barrier of engagement uh, because now we're in small groups. And if I'm a student who, who struggles in reading or math and my whole life I've been sitting in a room of 24 to 30 students and kind of getting lost in the back of the room, now I'm sitting at a, at a table or a group of desks with maybe seven or eight students and a, and a teacher and I'm getting my first chunk of instruction, and then I'm rotating to an entirely new adult, and I'm getting the next chunk. Now, you can imagine it, it takes extensive planning between those adults that are all going to be in that room. But that experience for me as a student who struggles is completely different, and it's much easier for me to stay actively engaged uh, in the learning. And then the last thing that flexible grouping does, because you can get multiple adults in the room at the same time with students who struggle, now I'm team teaching. And so my strengths can complement the strengths of another talented individual who's in there as well and vice versa. So we're better together. We're better collaborating uh, than we would be on our own. So again, that first counterintuitive practice Flexible grouping of students can have a big-time impact on student success. 
The second counterintuitive uh, practice, and this is one I kind of have a little story to tell on this one. I'll get to it in a second. Uh, keep your training inside your school or inside your district. And here's what I mean by that. It isn't bad. I mean, we all train our staff and we all need training ourselves. So inside your school or district, you know, each summer or even during the year, there are times where we all need to be trained and we need to hone our skills and and learn new skills. And I'm not saying it's bad to bring in outside folks. In fact, I work at an educational cooperative and that's part of what we do. We go into schools and districts and uh, and train and bring in expertise and help them. But, but I'm going to make a case. This, that's part of what makes it counterintuitive. I want to make the case that when you can empower the superstars that you have inside your school or inside your district to provide training for your staff, um, it just adds a different element. It adds a different mindset, um, and it, makes, it can make a huge difference. Now, why is it uh, – well, hold on before I say that. Here's the story I have on it. When, uh, when I was assistant superintendent uh, in my, my school district, which was Boyle County Schools, it, we were a high-performing school district, and, and uh, uh, we became a high-performing school district over about a six- to eight-year period. And at one point, I got a call from a national organization, and they were calling high-performing school districts across the nation and we're asking some questions and trying to gather data about what the the common threads were. And so we had a really good uh, interview there. And this idea of uh, when I was in Boyle County, we did almost all of our own training in-house done by our teachers, our principals, our district uh, administrators. So I shared that uh, with the gentleman who was interviewing me. Well, a few weeks later, he called me back and he just wanted uh, to double back with me and let me know that he had finished his uh, interviews and he wanted to give me a little feedback. And what he said was, uh, he said, the things you shared with me, you had six or seven things you shared that you felt like contributed to your all success. And all of them were common threads with other high performing schools and districts I talked to, except for one. He said, that thing you said about doing your training in-house and believing that the answers for success resided inside the district, he said, you all were the only ones that I heard say that. And so when I say, why is it counterintuitive? I think it's counterintuitive because we tend as leaders to believe that we're all doing the best we can and we're operating from a mindset of need instead of a mindset of empowerment. And the other thing is, you know, we have money we have funding set aside in our schools and districts for training. So it's kind of like, well, we have that money set aside, so why would we not use it uh, to bring other folks in? So here's why it works. If you're a district leader or if you're a school leader, your number one job is to know who your superstar employees are and try to train as many other educators as possible to use those practices and adopt the mindsets that your superstars are using every day. If you really wanted to boil down to your job to one sentence, that's what it is. Who are my superstars and how can I get other people, more people to look, act, think, behave, and just overall be like my superstars? Now, that doesn't mean 
everybody needs to be a carbon copy of everybody else, but there are things that are happening in your superstar teachers or your superstar administrators, uh, classrooms or schools that make them superstars. And some of those things are talent-based, but a lot of those things are teachable. They're skills and mindsets that can be taught and duplicated uh, in other settings. And so if, um, if you have those smart, capable people who are already working in your school or district, uh, why not empower them to, if that's my job anyway, that's my number one goal is to get more people to, to uh, you know, behave in that way. Why not empower them to help others learn? Uh, and, I, and I know it's a, you know, there's, it's a balance. I mean, you don't want to put them in a bad situation. You don't want to create jealousy. You know, you have to handle it in a certain way. But the answers are sitting right there in your classrooms, in your schools, in your districts. So why not use those folks to help get you there? Uh, and by the way, in doing so, it develops them as leaders. So uh, they become more consciously competent. They're good at what they do, and now they're really aware of what it is that they're doing uh, that works. So it really is a win from many, many different perspectives. And then here's the last thing I'll mention about it. If you keep your professional development kind of controlled and led inside your school or district, it creates this feeling inside your organization that we, we own our own destiny. And that is a powerful that is a powerful feeling. It's an important feeling. If we in our organization believe that success is possible, and not only is it possible, the answers reside right here. They reside inside this building or they reside inside this district. You know, I can walk over, I can find somebody who has the answers, who knows what it is that we need to get better in or or who has the capacity that even or even if he or she doesn't have that skill right now, they can learn that skill, they can gain that expertise, they can share it with others. Uh, that is just a powerful mindset for your staff uh, to have. It makes success feel achievable. It makes us feel like we can do it. And so that's why that counterintuitive practice of keeping training and professional development controlled inside our school and district done by our people can be such a big deal. Now, <clears throat> a couple cautionary things. You want to make sure that you are purposeful about which educators that you're using to train others. I mentioned your superstars. You know, you it can't just be a free-for-all. It can't just be, hey, does anybody want to do training on something you do well? Um, because uh, that, you know, it needs to be something that you're monitoring and that you're being, again, intentional, being intentional and purposeful is so important in so many aspects of leadership. And this is another one of those. Uh, you have to be intentional and purposeful about who you're choosing to be able to, uh, you know, to uh, empower and train others. It can't just be anybody who wants to step up to the plate, although it is good for others. You know, maybe there are other ways that those folks uh, can help, but it has to be a little more heavily controlled than that. 
Uh, second, and this kind of goes along with it, somebody in a leadership position, you know, once, let's say you've asked a teacher to lead a six-hour training on something that he or she is really good at, well, you as a leader or someone else who's a, a leader needs to work alongside them. Uh, you know, they give them time to develop what it is that they're going to do, but then spend some time with them looking at it and quality controlling it, making sure that it's high quality, making sure that there's not anything that they're going to inadvertently say that might contradict another message that, that's been going out in the school or district or another practice um, that you've been kind of... Uh, that you've been trying to get going, that probably won't happen, but you need to make sure that you stay on top of it so that you all can work collaboratively and you can set them up uh, for success, for the highest level of success. So there's two counterintuitive practices, flexible grouping and keeping your training uh, led by those who are inside your school or district the majority of the time. There are times that you still need to bring in outside expertise and new ideas. So I'm not saying never do that, but uh, own your own destiny to the extent you can. So we're ready for counterintuitive practice number three. And this is one you're probably, you may not think this one uh, is controversial, but I want to tell you, uh, you know, I, I over the years in education, I've seen this one over and over. Counterintuitive practice number three is invest in your people, not programs or textbooks or uh, filling. It's not about the materials. It's about the people uh, and investing in in them to help them choose good materials uh, to use. So let me dig into that just a little bit. One thing that I have noticed over the years is that so many schools are very program driven. They're not really standards-driven or content-driven or even skill-driven. They're really, they, they have purchased a program, and, and they're really driven by that program. Um, so, you know, I, I just want to say to you, uh, there are great programs out there, but success in your school or district is not about a program that you can purchase. And, you know, with, any, uh, with anything that you can purchase, you know, we can... We could go to a high-performing school that uses that program, and we could go to a very low-performing school that uses that program, and we could find schools that are all in between, and that pretty much is any uh, program. It doesn't mean there aren't good ones out there, but it means it's about the people. Uh, you all, I talk about Todd Whitaker a lot. Todd Whitaker talks about it being about people, not programs. Uh, Todd's actually visiting Central Kentucky. Uh, my organization's bringing, in him, bringing him in next Tuesday, June 13th at Eastern Kentucky University. And I'm looking really forward to getting to meet him for the first time. But he talks about it's about people, not about programs. So invest in your people. First of all, hire talented people. We did an episode about hiring for talent. I encourage you to go listen to that if you haven't already. Hire talented people. Train them really well. Train them thoroughly. Uh, Give them frequent feedback, support them, uh, really give them everything they need to be successful. If there's if there if there is a material or a training or whatever that they need, make sure they have everything they need to be able to operate at the highest level. Your job is going to be to empower them, support them, give them feedback and remove barriers for them. And then I want to go one layer, a, a, a layer a deeper layer 
uh, here. So in the classroom, you know, when we're talking about investing in people and we're in the education business, so we're into uh, teaching and helping kids develop content and skills and have experiences that are going to use that they're going to use to be successful throughout their lives. As a leader, work on instilling a focus among your staff on perfect alignment. I call it congruence, but perfect alignment between standards at the beginning of the lesson or the beginning of the unit or the beginning of a project, the standards that are driving what's happening in the classroom on the front end, perfect alignment between those and the assessments uh, whether those are performance oriented or whether they're paper and pencil or whatever in between, the assessments, the questions, the rubrics that are going to be used during the learning and at the end of the learning. So standards at the beginning, assessments at the end, and then perfect alignment of everything that is used in between. So if there's a great resource, well, let me back up. Uh, when I'm in schools, and, and I was probably guilty of this as a teacher myself, that's where I often see the disconnect. And a lot of times it comes back to the verb and the standard. The verb and the standard is something like justify or analyze. Um, but in the class, we aren't ever really having the kids justify or analyze. We're using the right vocabulary. We're teaching the right topic. Uh, we're making it real world. We're doing all it's hands on. We're doing all the right things. But instead of having the kids analyze or justify, we're only having them list or identify or describe or explain another verb. Uh, and a lot of times it's a lower level verb. And so as you're investing in people, if you can instill a mindset of congruence or perfect alignment between standards and everything else that happens, it can make such a big difference. And then if your teachers or your school has a great resource that it owns, or a great program, and that program has lessons, uh, assessment questions, activities that are perfectly aligned with those standards, well, then that takes that to a new level. And you should encourage your teachers at that point, you know, use those, but only use the pieces of the program that are perfectly aligned to the standard uh, that you're teaching. And if you can't find resources inside, uh, if you can't find, you know, um, activities or lessons or questions inside that resource that are aligned to your standards, then you should look somewhere else. There are other places. You can find it in maybe an older program that you have, or you can Google it. It doesn't really matter where it comes from as long as it's perfectly aligned to the standards that you're trying to teach. So why is it counterintuitive? Well, it's a little counterintuitive, this whole investing in people, not programs, it, it kind of flies in the face of teaching a program with fidelity. If you're driven by congruence or perfect alignment, uh, that's a little bit different than being driven by uh, fidelity because when we're driven by fidelity, it means I have a program and I'm going to teach every piece of it and I'm going to teach it in the order that it is planned. If you're driven by or that it, that it was created, if you're driven by congruence or perfect alignment, well, now I'm going to be driven by the standards and I'm going to use the program, but I'm only going to use the pieces of it that are perfectly aligned to the standards. So that's what makes that one just a little bit counterintuitive. So counterintuitive practice number three, it's not about the program. It is about the people 
And uh, having a great program is good, but investing in people takes your programs and everything else to another level. All right, two more. Counterintuitive practice number four is protect instructional time. Now, you're going to laugh. That's not really counterintuitive. We all talk about, you know, I mean, gosh, when we're in school to become principals or superintendents or teachers, I mean, we all talk about protecting instructional time. So that one shouldn't be uh, counterintuitive uh, at all. But wait till you hear what it means. Let's think about what, when I say protect instructional time, I get that as a concept, but what does that actually mean in practice? So let's talk about what that looks like in a classroom. It means if you're protecting instructional time, it means that you don't switch classes late. Uh, you don't keep the kids too long so that they are late for their next class because that impacts the instructional time in the next class or in your class for the students who are coming to you. It also means that you don't allow students to be tardy uh, very often. You know, you have some sort of system with your class or your school uh, where you're sweeping the hall and you're making sure kids are in the class so that we can begin learning together just as the bell rings. Protecting instructional time for us administrators means you don't make announcements during class time over the intercom uh, or whatever means that we have. We don't interrupt uh, learning. And, and some of those announcements are important, but some of them are just having kids come to the office and that kind of thing. So we, we find ways to avoid uh, doing that. Protecting instructional time, and I mentioned this a minute ago, means we're going to teach bell to bell. And in order to teach bell to bell, you have to have a structure in place. I recommend that you start every class with a flashback. Um, so kids walk into the class and every single day they know they have two or three flashback questions that are not what we've been reviewing from this week, but a way of cycling through content uh, that we have taught previously. So maybe it's December and you're doing flashbacks from unit one or unit two, and you, you may flash back to those unit one and two questions multiple times throughout the year. So kids come in and they know that's the beginning of the lesson. We walk in, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to get started on my flashback questions. And then your lesson needs to end every day right at the end of the period with a formative assessment. Uh, or maybe you give your formative assessment a little bit before the end of the period, but uh, you're going to do some reteaching before the kids uh, leave and give some extensions to kids who who uh, learn the content today easily. So teach bell to bell is part of protecting instructional time. Now, the next couple, these get to be really counterintuitive, and I don't want them to be too black and white, like it just has to be this way, but I want to challenge you to think about these things. Protecting instructional time means you don't have guest speakers coming in all the time. Now, I'm not saying guest speakers are bad. Guest speakers can be great. But every day you have a guest speaker is a day, you know, that guest speaker is probably not going to speak for the whole period. And so there are going to be, you know, 30 minutes there or 20 minutes there of, of unused instructional time. And if you do that 20 or 30 uh, times a year, uh, then, then you're, you're getting into hours and hours of lost instructional time during the school year. So not saying you can't ever have a guest speaker, but you need to limit 
the amount of guest speakers coming in. Speaking of limiting, you also need to li- uh, limit pep rallies, assemblies. I told you it would be counterintuitive. Assemblies and pep rallies can be great, and they're good for culture building. I'm not saying don't ever do them. But if you're having a pep rally every Friday night, because we have a football game every Friday night, and so we're killing uh, hours of instructional time every Friday, that really adds up. We're talking about academic success here. And so every moment of learning is precious. And so we need to look, not eliminate assemblies and pep rallies and things, but we need to, we need to uh, limit them. We need to control those. Another way to uh, protect instructional time is when you have student presentations. So let's say you have a group of, you know, you have groups of two or three students that have been working on a project or a paper or whatever it is. And, you know, then you need to have a day where they're going to make a presentation based on the work that they did. Well, sometimes, you know, old school teaching is we'll have each one of those groups go up in front of the class and present. And then they'll sit down and another group will stand up and present. Then they'll sit down and another group will present. Before you know it, we've used three class periods uh, getting through these presentations. Consider using a science fair model where students are in stations throughout the room. Invite other adults to come in and hear their presentations. And so uh, we have multiple adults all walking around the room and we're popping in and listening to each one of those presentations. It's better for the kids because they'll get to do their presentation multiple times and we all get better at things the more often we do them. Uh, they'll learn the content better. They'll, they'll develop those communication uh, skills even at a higher level and we'll be finished in one day. Uh, now you as the teacher, you have to get around and see them, but I encourage you to give a rubric or a checklist to your guests who are coming in to listen as well so they can also give you some feedback. Um, but getting finished in a day or a day and a half is, is a lot better than each group going up one group at a time and it taking days and days uh, to get that finished. And then two other uh, reasons, uh, two other ways to protect instructional time. Number one, keep students in the classroom. And here's what I mean by that. Instead of pulling kids out all the time for intervention or special education services or English as a second language services, uh, push adults into the classroom to work with those students during their normal class time. Uh, maybe as their rot- kids are rotating through stations or whatever, try to f- try to flip. If you if you have a lot of pullout time where kids are being pulled from the classroom, try to flip that so that you're pushing into those services much much more. That's a great way to and uh, and and you know there are some extreme situations or some there are going to be some situations where a student still needs to be pulled, but really try to dial that way way back. And the last one is, uh, I said keep students in the classroom. You also need to prioritize keeping teachers in the classroom. What that means is, you know, you you need to really avoid pulling teachers from the classroom to uh, cover another class or to deal with a student behavior uh, situation. There are different reasons we pull teachers from classrooms. Every time you pull a teacher from a classroom, uh, let's say it's a co-teacher, the students in that class lose that day. They, they don't get the learning 
that they should have gotten that day. And another thing, and this one again is counterintuitive, you know, it's good for teachers to leave the district every now and then to go to a training or go to a conference or whatever, but you really need to limit that. Uh, They only need, uh, any of us, principals, district administrators, we only need to go to something when it's going to have a great return on investment, when we're, we're going to be able to come back and do things for students that are significantly better than what we would have done if we hadn't, have, hadn't gone. And if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times the training that we as, as educators, whether we're teachers or administrators, a lot of times the training that we go to or the conference that we go to doesn't really have that kind of impact. It doesn't mean that, it, that it's not good or you can't bring back a couple little nuggets of information that might help you, but it's not a game changer. It doesn't have a great return on investment. And so you really need to limit that. Every day the teacher isn't in the classroom with the students. I'm not saying it's a lost day, but sometimes it's a lost day. And it certainly is not a day that uh, students can learn at the level that they would on the day that the teacher, on the days that the teacher is in the classroom. So counterintuitive uh, practice number four Uh, That doesn't sound counterintuitive, but many of the aspects are protect instructional time. So counterintuitive practice number five, we're coming down the home stretch here, is accelerate students aggressively. And this kind of goes back to, you know, what we talked about earlier with um, tracking and that, you know, that sort of thing. When you say aggressive acceleration of students, you know, people tend to think, well, you know, that's not fair. You're creating like this elite uh, track of students and that's not really good overall and they need to be heterogeneously grouped, uh, et cetera. But here's why, uh, uh, first of all, this isn't that. And uh, second of all, you know, today's, today's workplace and marketplace is, is increasingly competitive. And so students who uh, achieve at high levels easily in reading or math it's important that they are uh, that they can move forward at a challenging pace, and that tends to lead to acceleration because the pace that they can move at is a little faster, and it's and it gets to be above grade level um, pretty quickly. So that pace needs to be as fast as the students can progress without being frustrated or without falling behind, and the process needs to be systematic. So. You know, how do we know the correct pace? It's important as we're accelerating students that we're basing it on frequently collected and analyzed data, that we are rooting our decisions in standards that are probably above grade level, um, and that we have an intentional grouping structure that surrounds these students for periods of the day with other students who are also uh, accelerating. Now, that doesn't mean that a student can't be accelerated in a, in a heterogeneous genius grouping, a mixed ability grouping. They can. Um, but uh, back to flexible grouping, which was counterintuitive practice number one, there are just some things within that structure that make it uh, a little bit more efficient uh, as we're working to... Uh, accelerate students. So, so what makes it counterintuitive? Well, we talked about tracking. Here, here's the other thing, though. You know, it gets to be messy. Um, and what I mean is it, it gets to be hard to schedule those students because we're, you know, they, they may be with 
other students that are older than them. It gets to be messy as well because sometimes if we have a younger student, we really don't want them to be with an older, more mature, more worldly uh, group of students. Um, and, and sometimes they get so far ahead of their peers that, you know, for those periods of the day, it just it never makes sense again for them to be with their peers. And so those are the reasons that it's counterintuitive and those are the reasons that sometimes we choose not to do it. So here are a couple cautions. Number one, you, you've heard me today say purposeful and intentional a lot. So you have to be purposeful, intentional uh, with this. And here's why. If a student is able to learn at a uh, rapid pace and, and be able to excel at that pace, you have to be careful that you're not skipping big chunks of content or standards or skills that that student needs because you may skip it this year. They may not need it for the next two years. But, if, you know, for instance, if it's math, there may be something they learn in fifth or sixth grade that doesn't show up again until Algebra 1. And if you skip that skill or that piece of content, it can really do some damage to that student's ability uh, to succeed later on. So you have to be very intentional and methodical about the way you're allowing and fostering that acceleration. And then, you know, we've talked a lot about mixed ability, heterogeneous grouping. And it's super important that these students who are accelerating in reading and or math have periods of the day when they're in mixed ability classes. Uh, it's good It's good for them in many different ways. We don't want a, a homogeneous, same ability group uh, of students being together all day long, uh, every day. It's important socially. It's important emotionally. Uh, it's important in a lot of different ways that they have time with their same age peers. So, uh, so this fifth one, again, counterintuitive, but super important for student success is accelerate students aggressively. So I want to do a real quick review. Uh, there were five counterintuitive practices today, and they were uh, flexible grouping of students was number one. Number two was try to keep your uh, training and your professional development done a large majority of the time in-house. Number three, uh, invest in your people, not so much in programs. Uh, I want to say again, programs are good, but investing in your people and having them driven by standards and using programs as a tool uh, is, is a great method to move towards student success. Number four, protect instructional time. And that one doesn't sound counterintuitive, but if it, it is when you get into the details of what it really means, and then counterintuitive practice number five, accelerate students aggressively. So there they are, five counterintuitive practices that can significantly impact student success. I hope you'll be able to incorporate them uh, into your work, in your school, in your classroom, in your district. So with that, that is going to do it uh, today for another episode of Advantage. Really enjoyed talking with you about these things today. I hope they're helpful to you. Thank you for joining me today. I want to give a little preview. During the next two weeks, we're going to, uh, we're going to get outside the box a little bit. Uh, we are going to have two nationally known uh, keynote uh, speakers, edu educate thought, education thought leaders, who are going to be joining us the next two weeks. Next week is going to be a gentleman, uh, Superintendent P.J. Capozzi, 
um, who has authored several books. Uh, He is the current superintendent of the year uh, in Illinois. He's a finalist for the national superintendent of the year. Really interesting guy. Uh, a lot of great thoughts. Looking forward to talking with him. And then the week after that, we're going to be talking uh, with uh, motivational speaker, Kim Strobel. And uh, she uh, she actually labels herself as a happiness coach. Uh, she has this um, thing she's going to talk to us about uh, that is about the science of happiness and what it is that, uh, what it is that controls uh, and, and allows us to kind of live our best lives and stay in a good uh, space mentally and emotionally. And so we're going to talk about the science of happiness uh, soon with Kim Strobel as well. So it's going to be great. I'm really excited to get to talk to them. I hope you'll join uh, us then. And uh, so until next week, hope you have a great week and I'll see you next time. Take care.